0: And we enter into a new section in Mark's Gospel, chapters 11 through 13, which you have Mark now describing the reasons why people (coughs) reject Jesus. And what we're going to notice in these first 25 verses sets the table for the rejection. It really explains all the, the problems of what the authorities are going to have with Jesus. Uh, We have talked about in our study throughout this gospel, and I've talked about when we haven't been in the gospels, the necessity for us to highlight the distinctions that are found in the gospels, that when you come to a gospel account and it reads differently than the other accounts, so often it's our tendency to try to quickly reconcile and harmonize that rather than accentuating that difference to help us understand what the point that the author is trying to get at by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to notice in this section here in Mark chapter 11 uh, that there are a lot of distinctions that Mark possesses. Now, the temptation I have is I would like to take these four sections and do four separate lessons, because you could certainly do that. But I would rather take a journey with you and take you through all four of these sections with the purpose of seeing that they interconnect very strongly, Uh, It would be very easy to miss the big idea here and misinterpret the end of this section if we take them piece by piece. But you'll notice that each of these sections, these four, in these 25 verses build up to a grand finale of what Jesus teaches. So understand what we're doing this morning, that as we go along, you're just going to be traveling the text with me. And we will have the big aha at the very end of what Mark is trying to show us with that. In in the first 11 verses that was just read for us in Mark chapter 11, uh, it is commonly called the triumphal entry. That here we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It is interesting to highlight that Mark is not concerned at telling you that this happened in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 like Matthew and Luke tell you that. And they say, okay, just as was quoted by the prophet, Mark goes, eh, all right, we're not going to talk about that. Rather, what I want you to see are two big ideas in this triumphal entry, you will notice that Jesus possesses full control over everything that happens. As he tells his disciples, go into the city and you're going to find a cult. And when they ask you what, what you do with the cult, you tell them to say that the master needs it and then they'll let you have it. And then you'll bring it back to me. Here's how it's all going to go. It's a very important foreshadowing right here. Jesus is fully aware of what's about to happen. These are the final days of his life. Nothing is going to happen by surprise. He is in full control of this situation and it's already revealed by the fact of here's what's going to happen when you go into the city and here's where you're going to find that cult and here's what the people are going to say to you and here's how you're going to respond and by responding that way they're going to let you do it. It's all under his control. This is immediately the thrust of what Mark wants us to see. It is also important that because Mark does not zero in on Zechariah 9 and say, this is the fulfillment of Scripture, but rather that you would soak in the imagery that this is the king arriving in Jerusalem. This is the big picture that if you remember, the gospel of Mark started with. He doesn't start with genealogy. He doesn't start with John the baptizer. He doesn't start with the early days of Jesus. Mark goes right to the very heart of it all and says, we have a message. Prepare the way of the Lord. Mark 1 verse 3. We just boom right out of the gate. We are preparing the way of the Lord because the Lord is coming. And Mark 11, here he is. Here he is, and he is riding in as king. And the goal is not to fulfill prophecy so much as to declare, I am the king who has come. I have come and I am going to now examine my constituents and my kingdom. Notice, you remember what Malachi said. Malachi said at the end of his prophecy, he said in Malachi three, verse one, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Remember, we echoed that back in Mark one, verse three. And notice what Malachi said right after that. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. When the Lord comes, there's going to be a God who's going to come and prepare the way, make his path straight. You need to get ready because the Lord will suddenly arrive and He's going to come to His temple as King. And when He comes, the rest of verse 2 says, He's coming in judgment. He's coming to purify. He's coming like fuller's soap in a refiner's fire. He is coming and you better be ready. But just remember a few verses later in Mark 1, what's John the baptizer saying? need to repent. He's preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins because the Lord is coming. That's what's coming out in this passage. But notice what is interesting as well is as the king arrives, what are all the people proclaiming? They're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 through 27. They are declaring, He's the King. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The King has come, the kingdom has arrived, and here is the Lord and praising God for his arrival and his coming. I just want you to imagine how you're getting this major buildup in these first ten verses. Here He comes. The Lord is fully aware of what's going to happen. He's riding into Jerusalem. Here is the King who's going to come to His temple, just as the prophecy said, just as John the baptizer warned, make his path straight, get ready. The people are proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And now look at what Mark records in verse 11 that none of the other Gospels say. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. A little anticlimactic. With all the pomp and circumstance and the crying of the crowds and the people and Hosanna and the highness and the king is here. And what would you expect when the king comes to Jerusalem and comes to his temple? We should have fanfare. We should have a great reception. We should know to be ready to receive the king and prepare for his arrival. He comes to the temple and there's nothing. Nothing. There's no one to receive him. No one is ready. There is no response. There is nothing from Jerusalem. There is nothing from the temple. There is a anticlimactic ending that just says, and then he he leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Bethany. Where's the fireworks? Where's the parade? Where's the shouting? Where's the hallelujahs? Here is the king and he's come to the temple. He comes to the temple. He has a look. He walks off. And it would be easy just to leave them. and go, okay, there's a whole lot to talk about right there. But watch what Jesus now does with all of this the next day. Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. All right. Interesting event here. Jesus is now going to come back to Jerusalem. So he's traveling from Bethany. He's coming back to Jerusalem. And along the way, there is in the distance this fig tree. He sees leaves on it. And he goes to the fig tree to see whether there is fruit on it or not. And as he comes to the fig tree, he sees that there is no fruit on it. And so he curses it. All right, let's talk about the symbolism before we get into the the bolts of that. First of all, it's important to understand all throughout prophecy, (laughs) vines, vineyards, fig trees are always symbolic representations for Israel. Constantly, I just decided I ran out of PowerPoint and I just left it at that. We could just keep going and going and going. How about one of the most notable where prosperity is pictured as everyone sitting under their own vine and their own fig tree. It is a representation of Israel when you talk about a vine, a vineyard or a fig tree. And it is also important to recognize that when the prophets depicted the spiritual condition of Israel... They would often describe that vine or vineyard or fig tree as being barren and fruitless. Isaiah 5 is one of the most notable. I'll save that because that's definitely chapter 12 with the parable of the tenants where that is being echoed. But you have that imagery of when the vine or a fig tree or a vineyard bears no fruit, that represents Israel. And so what you see Jesus doing is he comes and he is declaring the condemnation on Israel for being fruitless. Now that won't be that big of a deal except verse 13 where it says it wasn't the season for figs. And boy, do scholars have a heyday with that. <laughs> Well, this is a temper tantrum and a tirade that Jesus has here because how could you expect a fig tree to be bearing fruit when it's not the season for figs? Mark is very plain. (laughs) The fig tree couldn't bear fruit. It's not the time. And so, oh, how they tear Jesus up and down over this selfish outburst that he has in cursing a fig tree right here because what did you think was going to happen? And then there are some writers who come along and try to justify it. And they'll go, well, you know, there were early fruits and there were late fruits. And so with the leaves propping, they weren't very delicious. But you did have the early bud figs and they're trying to vindicate Jesus. Let's not do that. Let's just make the point as sharply as Mark is making it right here. That fig tree was not to be bearing fruit because it wasn't the season. But Jesus expected that it would be. There is an expectation that when Jesus came... When the king comes to Jerusalem and comes to his temple, they better have been ready. And I don't care what season it is. Or to use the Apostle Paul, where he would kind of echo this. What are you supposed to be? Uh, Ready in season and out of season. If you are a disciple of God, you are always ready. And Jesus tells all kinds of parables about that readiness. About And he's going to tell some of those even here shortly. The idea is, just as Malachi said, the king is going to come suddenly to his temple. Will Jerusalem be ready for that any moment at any time? And the answer from the first 11 verses is they're not. They are not. Thus, Jesus condemns it and says... They're never going to bear fruit again. The future of Israel is over. It is fruitless. There is not going to be fruit that is going to come from this ever again. I want you to get a sense of by Jesus doing that, you are hearing a, a prophet right there. Prophets said things like that. And you're getting a very prophetic picture out of this king. As the king comes and makes this declaration And saying, Israel has been found fruitless and it's never going to bear fruit again because you weren't ready when the king came. Notice the second picture goes right along with that in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Those are recorded in the gospel accounts. We're used to that. Notice what's unique. Verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Some of you visualize him just going He's coming into the temple And he flips some tables over And he makes the court of whips And drives the people out But notice it also here Mark wants to highlight something That we don't see anywhere else What Jesus does is he comes to the temple And he shuts it down You can't even walk through the temple Carrying something That's not even allowing that You can just imagine people are walking through this Very busy thoroughfare People bringing in their things He's going, nope, turn around Get out of here. Turn it around. No, no, nobody's coming through here. The temple is closed. It's shut down. Not having any of it today. Mark is highlighting this. Now think about that imagery for a minute of a king who comes to the temple for cleansing and restoration. Because that again has some prophetic echoes and overtones like Josiah and Joash who would come to restore the temple to make it what it ought to be. Jesus comes and declares their worship perverse. He'll really highlight that in just a second. And he's essentially saying, I'm shutting this place down for business. The very end of Zechariah, the very final words of the prophet Zechariah, no traitor will be in the house of the Lord. On that day, And here Jesus walks in and goes, let's get all that out of here, closing the temple down. Let's shut down the marketplace. Nobody's going to carry anything through here. It's a royal response as Jesus arrives. And notice now what it says in verse 17. Here's what he's teaching. Now, imagine this. We sometimes get focused on just the activity of Jesus as he's driving people out and shutting things down. But notice in verse 17, it says he's teaching. It says in verse 17, He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Let's let's start there for a minute. And Mark is unique. He has the full quote, All the nations. Where the others don't have that. It's a quote from Isaiah 56 and verse 7. Now, to understand the idea of this statement, my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations, it is important to understand what the temple was about. If I had half an hour, we would go study 1 Kings 8. We would go to 1 Kings 8. And there at the dedication of Solomon's temple, it's an amazing dedication. And the big point that is made over and over again in Solomon's dedication in each of those verses is he will describe the various sins that Israel will commit in the future. And he says, If we turn toward the temple and we pray toward that temple, God in heaven, hear our prayer and forgive us. That's the big idea of the temple. It was the place of prayer. When we sin, Lord, would you accept our prayer when we... You can imagine the visual, the repentance picture. When we turn toward the temple, we turn our lives and we turn our eyes and we turn our hearts toward the temple. Lord, in heaven, you hear our prayer and you forgive. What is interesting is couched in the middle of that dedication is that even Solomon applied that to the foreigners. And said, when the foreigners turn their eyes and pray toward that temple, Lord in heaven, you hear their prayer and you answer it too. Pretty shocking in the midst of that dedication where you'd expect it to be just Israel. At the end of that, he talks about when we're taken into exile, Lord, and we pray toward the temple, Lord, you would hear our prayer and forgive us and bring us back. What Jesus is reminding them and declaring over and over again with the statement of the my house is to be a house of prayer is that it was the offering of hope for forgiveness to Israel and to the world. That's what that temple was supposed to represent. We know by studying the Old Testament, it turned into all kinds of other things. But the idea behind it was this is the very presence of God. And if we would turn ourselves toward that temple, forgiveness could be found. That's what they're doing in that temple. Atoning sacrifices. What's happening? Turn toward that temple. Receive forgiveness. Turn to the Lord. Jesus says this is what that temple is supposed to be. It's written by in Isaiah. Isaiah 56 and verse 7. In the future, think about where Isaiah 56 is. In the scope of Isaiah, chapter 53 is your suffering servant, right? And so you're getting these pictures of what will happen when Christ comes. When Christ comes, my house will be a house of prayer. It's going to be a house of forgiveness. And he reminds them of that. But notice what it is in verse 17. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers." That quotation would have resonated very strongly to them. Don't get lost in the idea of just a den of robbers or were they stealing and cheating and and, and things like that, though certainly that's likely part of the idea. But if you remember what Jeremiah's prophesying is all about the destruction of that temple and did not put their hope in it. Just two verses later from the quote in Jeremiah seven thirteen, And now because you have done all of these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called, you did not answer. Therefore. I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. The phrase, uh, this is a den of robbers, is couched in a context of the destruction of the temple. Your wickedness is causing your temple to be destroyed. God says, I'm going to turn it into Shiloh. Remember, tabernacle first started there. It wasn't there anymore. And He's saying, that's what I'm going to do now to Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. Jesus comes on the scene. Picture what was going on. Jesus comes on the scene. First, He curses the fig tree in the ears of the disciples. No more fruit out of Israel. Walks into the temple courts. Overturns the money-changing tables. Shuts down the temple. No one is walking through who's carrying something. And He's teaching everybody, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but instead it's become a den of robbers. I would do parenthesis again. And you know what happened last time it was proclaimed a den of robbers. Which notice what happens in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy it. They're not trying to kill him because he shut down the temple one day. We we'll just opened it back up for business tomorrow. But he came on the scene and said, "It's over." The temple is done. This place is a place of wickedness and evil, just like it was before. And God is going to do the same thing to it this time as he has in the past. In fact, Jesus' other accounts will say, your house is left to you desolate. God's not here and it is over for the nation and it is over for the temple. I want you to think about why are the leaders so mad about this? I want you to see that the problem that they're having is that relationship with God and their forgiveness is not going to come on their terms. That's what these future parables are going to show us when we get to chapter 12 especially. They want to run things their way. And we want forgiveness on our terms and we want a relationship with God in the way that we want to approach God. And this has been the problem all throughout the Gospel of Mark, where Mark is asking the question, who is going to humble themselves? Who are going to humble themselves and by faith do precisely what God has said to do? That's why if we reversed all the way back to Mark chapter 5 and we saw this amazing scene of a person who is an important leader in the synagogue, a ruler in the synagogue named Jairus? And he comes to Jesus by faith. Come heal my daughter. And then a messenger says, No, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. And Jesus says, Just believe. And he does. see, the big question is, are you going to accept Jesus on his terms? Are you going to submit to his way? Or are you going to tell Jesus the way it is? See, these leaders, that's what they're telling him. No, you're wrong. We don't like what you're saying. That can't be right. We're not a a, a den of robbers. We're, we're, We're not wicked. We're not like what they were in the past. That can't be And now it's with all of those overtones of what Jesus has done. He's come to Jerusalem. He inspects the temple. There is no reception. He on the way back out. We the second day. He comes back, curses the fig tree, no more fruit out of Israel, walks into the temple, shuts the doors and says, this place is closed. This is not a house of prayer to all the nations like it's supposed to be. It's a den of robbers. It is full of wickedness. God is going to judgment, judge it. It's doom is coming. Watch this final scene now. Verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed... Has withered. Here we are, and already picturing Israel in that spiritual condition. There's no fruit. This this nation is done. Close the doors. It's a den of robbers. It is spiritually devoid. Judgment is coming. And now Peter is clicking all of this in. In fact, the crowds were clicking all of this, and you'll notice at the end of verse 18, not only about the chief priests and the scribes want to destroy him, but notice all the crowd is astonished at his teaching. What are they astonished by in his teaching exactly? They're understanding exactly what He's declaring. And now as they walk by this fig tree that He just cursed earlier and said, may it never bear fruit again. Here it is, and it's already withered down to the roots. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Look at Jesus' answer in verse 22. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. I think it is of the utmost importance that we connect all this up as to what Jesus is about to teach right here and get a sense now of what this is all about. The temple is closed. That means there's no more forgiveness. God's not here. This is not the house of prayer like it's supposed to be, this is not the place of forgiveness. The nation is not going to bear fruit anymore. In fact, hear the idea of Jeremiah 8 to get a sense of why Jesus would respond this way to Peter. Jeremiah 8 verse 13. Here is God saying, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are are withered. Now we have our withered fig tree right here. And here's our picture. What I gave them has passed away from them. You can just imagine God doing that again to Israel right now. Everything that i would given to them, there's nothing left. Big tree is withered away. Now listen to the people. Why do we sit still, gather together, let us go into the fortified cities and perish there? For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poison water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. You see, not bearing fruit equaled judgment by God. Which is exactly what Malachi 3 said. The Lord is going to come suddenly to His temple. And who can withstand His coming? That's why you needed to repent. Remember what John would say? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. You better bear fruit quick. Because the Lord is coming suddenly. The Lord comes and looks There is no fruit. With the temple closed, there's no forgiveness. That's not the place of prayer anymore. It's the place of wickedness. It's the den of thieves. And here is Peter going, I get it. The fig tree is withered. I can't believe this. All of that imagery is just resounding within him. It's over for the nation. It's over for forgiveness. It's over for the temple. And Jesus says, have faith in God. All hope is not lost. There's something radical about what God is going to do. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for them. Let me please highlight a word right there. Here is all of this imagery about Israel's spiritual condition. It will no longer bear fruit. It is doomed to destruction. Close the temple. God is not there. Den of thieves. No more forgiveness. And here is this this statement by by Jesus. Have faith in God. Whoever says to this mountain. What's this mountain? Jerusalem. Our temple mount right here is our context. And a mountain being cast into the sea is a prophetic imagery of judgment. that, think that Mountains represent kingdoms and nations and powers. And we're going to cast it into the sea. It's going to be judged. It's going to be wiped out. Think about what he's saying. We're going to go around telling people that this nation is done. That it is bearing no fruit. That it is over for. This is not going to be the way to God any longer. Think about that's exactly what Stephen was doing you're in Acts chapter 7, you come along, and what's Stephen absolutely preaching? Those very words... You can imagine how hard it would be for the disciples to go around for about 40 years saying that thing's going to get destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be cast into the sea. It's over. God's not there. It's a den of thieves. It's a place of wickedness. There's not going to be hope there and there's no forgiveness there. And here he's telling them, have faith in God. That's going to happen. You go around telling them that and you better believe this mountain's going to be cast into the sea. It is going to happen. It has always been the prayer of faith that God will overthrow His enemies. Now watch what Jesus then identifies. And this becomes, now we've come full circle. You've waited this long and I told you there's the payoff at the end. Here we are in these final two verses. Verse 25. Verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. Let's stop there and just soak that one in. The temple was supposed to be the house of prayer. Lord, if we turn toward the temple and pray toward the temple, God in heaven hears our prayer and he will forgive us and answer our prayers. Jesus comes on the scene and says that temple's done. It's gone. It's fruitless. It's cast into the sea. It's going to be destroyed. We get to chapter 13. He'll be very plain in chapter 13 about not one stone left upon another. This temple is over. It's closed for business and God is not here. Now, it's hard for us in this economy. We're used to this point. Not there. What did it mean if you don't have a temple? How do you get forgiveness of sins? You don't. <laughs> That's the place. You need that place. You pray to the temple and God in heaven hears our prayers. We bring our sacrifices and atonement is made. And now here's Peter going, the, the, the tree's withered and gone. Have faith in God. And believe in what I'm going to do. And now you will pray and God will do it. The short term answer is God is going to answer your prayers and offer forgiveness, and it's not going to come through that physical temple. That's not going to be the basis. Mark doesn't highlight it here. We can go a lot of places in the New Testament. We know Jesus becomes that temple that we go through, that that prayer to receive forgiveness. That's the ultimate image. Right here, he's dealing with it's not going to be that physical temple anymore. You will pray to God. And God will hear your prayer and answer you. But watch verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The big key is verse 25. If you want to be forgiven, what do you need to do? you got to forgive others. you got to forgive others. Jesus is pictured as this beautiful new temple that we pray to God and we have access and through Him we can have forgiveness of sins. And here is this big deal that Jesus now comes around. Why did Israel lose the temple? Why was it no longer a house of prayer? Why was all of that lost? Why could they no longer get forgiveness and atonement for sins any longer? The bigger idea, den of robbers, wickedness is why they had lost their access to God. But I find it fascinating that he just doesn't go, okay, now don't be wicked ever again because that's a really big problem and wickedness is why you lose things before God and lose your privileges and you lose your blessings and you lose your status before God. All true. But Mark wants to highlight a really big deal. Yeah, certainly through the deliberateness of wickedness, but friends, we lose forgiveness when we refuse to forgive others. He just puts forward this new paradigm. Forgiveness will not be through the physical structure. It's closed. It's fruitless. It's shut down. It's cast into the sea. It's over. But if you pray to God, God is going to hear your prayers. Believe that, verse 24. But then verse 25, he qualifies that and says, we certainly lose our access to God and forgiveness from God, when we refuse to forgive others, friends, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Why don't you think about this picture? Jesus is the new temple. We belong to that new temple, as the New Testament over and over bases the picture. We are spiritual stones being built into this spiritual house. We are a part of this temple. We are supposed to be the ones who cause people to, for people to find God's forgiveness. (coughs) How well will the world find the forgiveness of God if we are unwilling to forgive other people? That's what it means to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Is we are the ones that are extending that to the world. We are the ones who are forgiving. We are the ones who are extending that and showing that to them. We cannot think that we have God's forgiveness if we are not forgiving others. We become the den of robbers. Because we refuse to give the forgiveness. We are the place of wickedness where people do not look at us and see God and see forgiveness and see all that God has to offer. They see wickedness and worldliness and we turn them away from God. The condemnation that fell on Israel can so easily fall on us in the exact same way. It is a critical question for us to ask. Are we a house of prayer to the nations? Or are we a den of thieves? How do we represent God to the world? Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Do you not know that you are the spiritual house that God has built up? Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. We are to be that. They were condemned for not being that. And we're cast out of relationship with God. How is the world going to find God's forgiveness when we do not forgive others? I just want to end by just you asking and answering these questions in your own heart Who do we have something against that we have not forgiven? Who are we holding anger against? Who do we have malice toward? Who do we, if we are honest with ourselves, hate? Who do we not want to forgive? Who has hurt us so that we refuse to let go of the bitterness and refuse to let go of that pain? Who is it that we refuse to forgive? Is it a family member, a friend, parent, child, spouse, another Christian here in this room or another Christian somewhere else, a co-worker, a neighbor? Please think about verse 25. Jesus says, every time we go to God in prayer, we are supposed to check our own hearts and think, is there somebody that I am being unforgiving toward? Because Jesus says, you can forget it if you think you're being forgiven by God and are not willing to forgive other people. We are to be a house of prayer to the world. Where they are to see forgiveness in us, we are to be so radically different that they would see that kind of heart, that kind of disposition. And friends, let me put it this way, that kind of desire for reconciliation with other humans. Some people may not want it, but we should desire it as much as it depends on us live at peace with all. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's our role. We must be a house of prayer to the world around us. Where do you stand with God? And I hope you'll consider the picture that was given to us in this scene. Judgment falls, and notice the imagery Israel is fruitless because of their wickedness, because they're not a house of prayer to the nations. One of the important ways we bear fruit is how we handle relationships with other people. Let me encourage you if you have something against somebody, that you reconcile that today. That you no longer hold a grudge, hold bitterness, hold malice, hold spite, hold anger, whatever it is, you need to solve that. You need to forgive. We need to reconcile with others so that God will forgive us and hear our prayers. Can we help you do that? Can we help you reconcile your life to Jesus Christ that you turn away from your sins, confess Jesus to be the Son of God who died for your sins and be immersed in water to have your sins washed away. Won't you come and respond now while we stand and while we sing.